Hey everybody, this is Brent Kellogg, the pastor of Hillspring Church in Sand Springs, Oklahoma. And this is our podcast. Thanks for taking time to join us today. Our prayer is that this would inspire you, build your faith, and help you take the next step in Christ. Enjoy the message. Uh, Jerry and I have been together 23 years and been married for 21 of that. And oh, eight, 10 months ago, I was offered a challenge to... um, just kind of up my game romantically. So knowing doing this little exercise, uh, her Valentine's gift probably just added another $100 to its value, you know what I'm saying? So but here's the problem. None of you other gentlemen I know deal with this quandary, but romance is, well, it's kind of a moving target. Like what's romantic on Monday might not be romantic by Saturday, you know what I'm saying? So I just, I just, I need the room to help me just a little bit. And so I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna ask you a series of questions and I'm gonna ask, is this sweet or is this romantic? Because I'll do a nice gesture and she'll go, oh, that's real sweet. I'm like, sweet? I wasn't going for sweet. I'm going for romantic. What do you mean sweet? It's not sweet, it's romantic. Very calm, all right? So I'm gonna give you an example, okay? Like, so if I were to rent out a private jet and fly her to Paris for a getaway weekend, and what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna ask you if that sweet you say, sweet, and then I'm going to say, is that romantic? Those of you that think that's romantic go, romantic, all right? Sometimes there'll be other options like, I don't care, all right? So, so let's just practice. I'm going to make sure you understand how this exercise works. So let's say I've rented a jet and taken her to Paris for a weekend. Is that sweet? It's sweet. Not one person? Okay. Is that romantic? Romantic. All right, so you understand what we're doing. So let's do something that's real, that I can afford, all right? Let's, let's get into. So <laughs> we used Google to kind of help. And so she's, I said, well, why don't you ask Google if some of this stuff is romantic? To which she said, Google's wrong, all right? So um, cooking breakfast. Is cooking breakfast sweet? Okay, yeah, there you go, all right. How many of you think it's Romantic. Yeah, God bless you. He gonna love you. I'm with you, girl. All right. Um, Buying chocolate, is that sweet? Buying chocolate, is that romantic? Okay, guys, guys, help me help you. Like now's your chance to take a stand because this is not going real well for us. I'm just telling you. All right, buy jewelry, is that sweet? Okay, Buy jewelry, is that romantic? Thank you. A beautiful dozen red roses. Is that sweet? Is that romantic? Thank you. Watching sea turtles. Is that sweet? Is that romantic? Is that neither? Okay, see, my wife thinks watching sea turtles is romantic. I don't even. All right. Buying fishing gear, is that sweet? (laughs) Rick Taylor told me to say that one. (laughs) That's right, baby. (laughs) All of you watching online, he said that was romantic. So here we go. We are dropping it down into first gear, putting it into four-wheel drive low. If you've never been in a Jeep or a pickup that does that, means you're going to grind really 
slow and we're going to dig through some kind of deep stuff, if you will. We're grinding our way through some theology, which is not sweet or romantic. And it can, if you're not careful, be a little bit boring. So my challenge is to present this in a way where it's not boring, but it's also useful. As I've come to understand God's word and the psychology of God's word, that even though it may be hard to understand at times, it is still, if we will abide and live by God's principles, if we'll let them get in us, it is useful for our life. And today is one of the things, I hope by the end I've tied it all together, that it may at times feel a little bit boring, but I hope it sets some of us in the room free. And I hope it builds a deeper theological foundation for you to build your life on. COVID just changed everything. I mean, we, we still want to be a reaching church. We do. We want to see people reach with the gospel. I don't believe we have behavior problems. I believe we have sin problems. And we want to present people with a solution to their problem in life. And that's a loving, giving relationship with Jesus Christ. But COVID's changed that. And so while we're still a reaching church, we just want to use this season to maybe just put it in four-wheel drive low and and just teach. I'm just going to grind a little bit on some theology that's found in the New Testament book of Philippians. If you've got your Bible, you can open up there. If you didn't bring your Bible, don't worry about it. We'll put it up on the screen. The city of Philippi was a, a city that Paul, on one of his missionary journeys, had stopped, and God actually called him there through a dream and a vision. We talked a little bit about that last week. And he gets to Philippi, and he meets some incredible people Ten years later, he would write this letter to them to encourage them, to encourage the Christians in Philippi. Acts chapter 16 actually tells us Paul's first trip in the city of Philippi. And honestly, it doesn't go very well. He's there. He and his companion Silas are are preaching and they're meeting people. They're converting them to to the gospel, to Christianity. And one day, there is a demon-possessed girl that's kind of harassing them. Kind of, whoo, it's kind of weird. And her demon possession had given her an ability to have psychic powers. Let me hit pause just a second. All of you young folks in the room, just because somebody might do something on TikTok or online or whatever, and it might seem harmless because they might make TV shows out of somebody that has a psychic ability. Let me just take you to Acts chapter 16. That was powered and empowered by a dark force that we don't want nothing to do with. Amen, adults? It might seem harmless, but it's not. It's dangerous. And so you have this demon-possessed girl who is owned, meaning she was a slave, and that's how he made money, is because he would sell her psychic ability. And one day, Paul and Silas are walking, and this girl, really, the demons kind of inspired her, and she kind of starts harassing them a little bit and going, these two follow the Most High God. And Paul gets a little bit frustrated, and he turns around, and he says, David, come out of her. I don't know how he said it, but for dramatic effect, let's just go with that. And so literally, in that moment, Paul set her free from that demonic power. Well, now the guy that made his living off of her oppression, he's a little bit frustrated. And so he creates a stir and an uproar, and this actually lands Paul and Silas in prison. And that's where I want the story to pick up in Acts chapter 16. It says, around midnight, Paul and Silas were out clubbing. No, it says they were actually praying and singing hymns to God. The other prisoners were listening. Suddenly, there was a massive earthquake, and the prison was shaken to its foundation. All the doors immediately flew open, and catch this, the chains of every prisoner fell off. The jailer woke up to see the prison doors were wide open. He assumed 
that the prisoners escaped, so he drew his sword to kill himself. Under Roman law, if I was a soldier in charge of a prisoner and the prisoner escaped, they would take my life in that prisoner's place. He assumes all the prisoners are gone. He assumes the Roman military was going to kill him because of a failure in his job. But Paul shouted, stop. Don't kill yourself. We're all here. The jailer then called for lights and ran to the dungeon, and he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Verse 30. Then he brought them asked, and he asked them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Really, really, really important question. That last line. We're going to wrestle with that some a little bit today from Paul's writing to the church of Philippians because I think that question, maybe that stuck with Paul. Maybe that, what must I do to get saved? Have I done enough to be saved? What, what can I do to be saved? And I think that stuck with Paul because in his writing to the letter at Philippians, he's going to dance around this a little bit today and we're going to put our floaties on and we're going to jump into the deep end of the pool and your brain's going to hurt when you leave. It's all right. Last week I talked about word association. Like when you say a word, something automatically comes to mind. Like when I say roses, you think romantic, right? When I think, say boomer, you say sooner. When I say country, you say music. There's this word association. A word association game I want you to get, when I say the word Philippians, I want you to automatically think joy. Paul is writing this letter to the Christians in the town of Philippi of how they can live a Christ-centered, spirit-empowered life of joy. That's what this whole book is about. It's a formula of how you and I can have joy in our walk with Jesus. I don't know about you, but I kind of like being happy, amen? And Paul's saying, listen, this is how you can live that life of joy. The part of chapter one that I wanna look at today, we're gonna start with verse nine, is actually a prayer. And so Paul, as he's early on writing with him, he then starts to write this prayer to them, and it's really, really powerful. He says, I pray that your love will overflow more and more. Jesus has called you and I to love. Matter of fact, he took the whole Bible. He summed up all the Old Testament. He summed up all of God's love and really put it into one word. Teacher, teacher, what, how must I inherit eternal life? He says, listen, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus took all of it and wrapped it up into that word of love. You and I are called to love God and love others. Ephesians 4.1 says, listen, you have been called. Live a life worthy of the calling. You have been, what am I called to do? I'm called to love God and I'm called to love one another. And Paul is praying that you would grow and overflow in that love and that you'll keep growing, check this, in knowledge and understanding. Christianity's hard. Having a relationship with a God is hard. The Bible says that God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. It is hard to sometimes understand all the intricacies of our relationship with God. This word theology, the study of theos. Theos means God. The study of God. It's hard to understand. And there's gonna come a day when we all get to heaven. What a day, what a glorious day that will be. And then all of a sudden we're gonna, oh, that's what that means. And Paul's praying, listen, I know it's hard to understand what it means to be a Christian. I know it's sometimes hard to understand things of faith and how this works. And so I pray that you grow in understanding and knowledge. And that's what I pray for you. And that's what I pray this series does as we jump into the deeper end of the swimming pool, that we would grow in knowledge and understanding. And I got to tell you, even this week, 
I've learned some things about God that even caused me to take my glasses off and go, well, I'll be. And just kind of push back on some things. I hope after we're done today, you'll kind of go, huh, well, I'll be. All right? He says this in verse 10, I want you to understand what really matters. We don't get distracted. The world, social media, the news, television, all of that stuff is going to try to tell you what matters. And he's like, listen, I want you to understand what really matters so you don't get caught up in drama, so you don't get caught up in the things the world wants us to get caught up. Listen, at age of 47, I'm just telling you, there are things that don't matter now that used to matter when I was 27. As we mature in God, like, oh, that don't matter. Kids come in all bent up, out of shape, and we're like, that don't matter. I want you to understand. He's praying, I want you to understand in your life what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day that Jesus Christ returns. And in verse 11, is where we're gonna put our swimming floaties on. We're gonna jump into the deeper end of the pool. We're doing communion just a little bit. And it's not grape juice. It's a double shot of espresso because you're gonna need it, all right? Because we're just gonna grind on verse 11. He says, may you always be filled with the fruit, I'm gonna define that word in just a minute. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation. And then he tells you what that is. He says, the righteous character that's produced in your life by Jesus Christ. Okay, that's the fruit of your salvation. It's righteous character that's produced in your life by Christ. For this will bring much glory and praise to God. Okay, now a lot of translations, um, it says, be, a lot of translations used be filled with the fruit of salvation. Some of them use the word righteousness, which we don't use that a lot. And, and it's one of those church words like sanctification, righteous. And like, I don't, I don't what, what does that mean? But some of the translations say being filled with the fruit of righteousness, which we are by Jesus Christ. Okay, so, so what is that? And he defines it. It's character, it's integrity. It's those things that Jesus produces in our life, Okay. So if we're putting our floaties on, we're jumping into the deep end of the swimming pool, I want to talk a little bit of theology. Ology is the study of, theos is God. I want to talk about the study of God. Our God, Jehovah, Yahweh, is a three-part God. The word we use is triune, tri, three parts. Egg, has egg yolk, egg white, and egg shell. Three parts, one egg. Our God has three parts. There's God the Father, who is seated on his throne in heaven. God the Son, who is Jesus Christ, that was born of the Virgin Mary, came, he lived for about 34 years, shed his blood on the cross, was laid in a cold, dead tomb, was resurrected, overcame death, hell, and the grave. He ascended up to the Father. He is now seated at the right hand of God. God the Father at the throne, Jesus is at his right hand, and then there is the Spirit, of God. We call that the Holy Spirit. It's the essence of God. And I don't know if you've ever been where somebody says, oh man, I feel like the Lord just told me. Well, God the Father is seated on his throne in heaven. It was God speaking, but he spoke through his spirit. He spoke through the Holy Spirit. Oh man, did you feel that? Oh, I just feel like God's here. God's on his throne in heaven. It's the presence of God. It's the essence of God that we experience. Meaning, We have our relationship with God the Father through the Holy Spirit who's here on earth. If that makes sense, say aye. All right. Ephesians 1.13 says, and now you Gentiles. The Bible, specifically the New Testament, has two groups of people. It has Jews 
who are descendants of Abraham, the people of Israel, and Gentiles, non-Jews, okay? My family's German. I'm a Gentile, all right? So now you Germans, you Gentiles, you people from Arkansas, you've all heard, about, you've also heard about the truth, the good news that God saves you. Meaning everybody that's not a Jew that's heard this, listen, you, you can be saved too. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own. And how did he do that? He gave you his spirit. He gave you the Holy Spirit. Like we pray that, okay, maybe when you were a kid, you wanna invite Jesus into your heart. How's he gonna get in there? I don't know. No, when you, you invite Jesus into your life, you're, the Holy Spirit is really what comes into your life. Let me show it to you in the New King James. He says, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. In that moment that I gave my life to Jesus, I invited Jesus into my life. Well, Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of the Father. I invited the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, into my life. In that moment, I was sealed. God gave me his Holy Spirit. It's a couple of things that the Holy Spirit does, okay? He does a lot. I just wanna hit three because it, it plays into the bigger conversation we're gonna have today. The first thing the Holy Spirit does is gives me a spiritual gift that is my contribution, that's your contribution to the church, that's your contribution to your generation, the kingdom, to make this world a more spiritual, a better place. Today, growth track, step two, after this service, we talk about the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to us. We talk about how we as a church bring those together to make this beautiful thing called the body of Christ, okay? So he gives me a gift. Secondly, he empowers me to my calling. You have been called. My calling is to love God. My calling is to love people. My calling is to others. God's heartbeat is always towards the lost. God's heartbeat is always to helping people. Your calling is a part of that. Your calling and your gifting is to help the church, is to help other people. Number three, the Holy Spirit creates a desire inside of me to become more like Christ. We call it conviction. The Holy Spirit puts a desire in me for me to spiritually grow and get better and be more like Christ. And Paul is praying that that come to fruit in their life. I, I pray that you might understand. I pray that this, the fruit of your salvation, I pray that you might just become more and more and more like Jesus, all right? May you be filled with the fruit of your salvation. One translation or several translations say righteousness. That righteous character produced in your life by Jesus for that'll bring a lot of glory and praise to God. So let me grab some definitions, if you will, out of this. I went back to the original language and, and just looked at because this word, this verse says the fruit of your salvation. Well, that's not apples. I love bananas. That's not bananas. What is fruit? What, what In the Greek word, what's the word that's there? So in the Greek, the word fruit that they put there, it means to act. It means a result. It means work. It means a something that comes to a result, okay? Well, I invested some money and it grew. That was fruit, okay? It's not just apples and bananas. It, it's a result. It's deed. It's word. It, it's act, okay? And then he said the fruit of your salvation or the fruit of righteousness. Well, in Christianity, righteousness has two Working definitions. I'm gonna give you both working definitions because I think this verse ties them together beautifully. When the Bible talks about righteous, okay? 
The first meaning is right living. Sorry, right standing. I just ruined the second one. Dad, gummit. Right standing. I am made righteous. I am put in right standing with God because Jesus shed his blood on the cross. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. Jesus shed his blood on the cross. God doesn't see my sin. He sees the blood of the sacrifice of Jesus and that blood put me in right standing with God. So the first definition, you are made righteous by Christ. I'm put in right standing. God, I, I, I can be back in relationship with God, all right? So the first meaning is right standing. The second meaning is right living, okay? Well, brothers, we're called to righteousness. Okay, right living, it means integrity. It means purity. It means virtue. It means living correct in feeling, in how you think, in your actions. And I believe this prayer that Paul's praying, Philippians 1.11, I believe it brings both of these meanings, right standing and right living, and it brings them together in a beautiful form, and you'll see that. So if I could, if I could rewrite this verse and attempt to help you to understand what I think it's saying, put it in the Brent Kellogg version, the BKV, all right? Here we go. You ready? Say, I'm ready. First service was already asleep by here, so just pat yourself on the back. You're far more spiritual than they are. Maybe it's because it's later and you're awake. It's fine. The result, the outcome, all right, the fruit, the outcome of being saved, the result of being saved, put in right standing with God, the outcome of being saved, put in right standing, should produce an outcome of right living in my life. That's how this verse comes together. When God saved me and put me in righteous standing, in right standing, because of that, there should be an outcome that it's gonna change how I behave. If that makes sense, say amen. Okay, seems simple, it's easy to amen. Okay, it's really, 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 really important that you and I as Christians understand this principle, and I'll explain why but really, really important that we understand the order of how that happens, okay? Because I am saved, I'm put in right standing, and then the Holy Spirit comes in. Remember, Holy Spirit helps me, empowers me. It also helps me to live more like Christ. So I'm put in right standing. I'm sealed with the Holy Spirit. It helps me get better. That will produce better living in my life. That will produce right living in my life. So here's the order, all right? Flip it up on the screen. I'm saved. The Holy Spirit works in me to help me mature and grow, put a desire on me to get better conviction. And that produces, in turn, I get better. It produces right living. Right standing, Holy Spirit, right living. Okay? This is why this order is important. There is something in us, in our human nature, that says, if it's too good to be true, it's not, yeah, it's probably not true, all right? And our enemy, our spiritual enemy, old Lucifer himself, the devil, he knows that. And so he uses this little bitty door of, if it's too good to be true, it's probably not true. And he uses that to create confusion and create deception because he constantly wants people to get this order 
all mixed up. He wants people to stay confused about salvation and how, brothers, what must I do to be saved? And the enemy wants people to be confused as to what the order looks like. We'll throw a verse at you, Ephesians chapter two, verse eight. God saved you by your good looks. That ain't what it says. God saved you by his grace when you believe. You can't take credit for this. It was a gift. Gifts are free. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done. None of us can be prideful about it. And none of us can be proud. Hey, look, I was good enough. I cleaned myself up enough for God to save me. He's like, no, it's a free gift from God. You can't boast about the things you've done because it's God that saved you, not what you did. You were saved by God's grace. You didn't earn it. You didn't clean up enough about it. So none of us can have pride in our own ability. We'll come back to that in just a moment, all right? There's something in our human nature that says if it's too good to be true, it's not true. Like the email from the rich prince in the Middle East whose rich uncle died, and he's trying to get some millions of dollars in your bank account if you'll just give him that information. Don't do that. Not good. Too good to be true, it's probably not true, except in this one instance. Except when it comes to the grace and the bountiful mercy of God. And the enemy himself knows that there's something in our human nature that's not trusting. It's too good to be true. It's probably not true. And he uses that crack to create confusion. So therefore, we constantly feel this pull to earn my salvation. I have to clean up. I got to get better. I got to work harder. And then I can get saved. Human nature says I've got to earn it. The enemy loves for me to be confused about the order. But Paul in Philippians 1.11, he says, listen, I'm praying that you grow in your calling, but I'm really praying you understand what God has for you. Because I know this can be confusing. Some of y'all look confused right now. I totally get it. And Paul's like, I'm praying you understand. God, I'm praying today that this message, we understand how great, how big, how deep, how wide your love is. The order is, God saved me, the Holy Spirit sealed me, went to work on the inside of me, and then I got better. Not, I cleaned myself up, the Holy Spirit jumped in, and then God saved me. It's very important that we understand the order. Even the Jewish religion got it out of order. And this is, I'm telling you, this is one of those things where I took my glasses off and went, (laughs) well, I'll be a son of a gun. I'm gonna show it to you. I don't expect you to act like that. But let me show it to you. You guys still with me? In the Old Covenant, and I've, I've, I've taught that in the Old Testament, you were made right, you were put in right standing by keeping the law. And God just, that's not what the Old Covenant's about. Let me show you this. Grace has always been a part of God's story. Even the Old Testament, Grace is very present in the Old Testament. I'll quickly give you a couple examples. You can go back to the garden. In the beginning, God created. There was this garden. He made all these beautiful fruit trees. He made man. He made Adam. He said, Adam, you can have all these trees. I'm just asking you give me back this one tree. Just, just don't eat off this tree. Knowledge of good and evil. You can have all these other trees. Okay? And then the serpent, snakes. Why, there's no such thing as a good snake. Don't start that at me. You know what I'm saying? The serpent created a little bit of confusion about what God really say. He was trying to get Adam and to Eve to, to doubt what God's word really said, and oh, they ate the fruit. Okay? 
Here's the problem. Genesis 2, 16 said, the Lord had warned him, you can eat freely of all the trees in the garden, verse 17, except this tree. Give this one back to me, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to, say it with me, you're sure to die. They ate the fruit in Genesis chapter two. They should have, should have kicked over dead. Genesis three, God comes looking for Adam and Eve. They're hiding because they had eaten of the tree and they realized they were naked. And God's like, Adam, Eve, are you? And then finally they kind of fessed up. Well, she did it. Well, she's like, well, the snake did it. And all of a sudden, in Genesis 3, 21, it says, and the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. Animal skins. There's not an animal out there just walking around bare bones and muscle. The animal had to die. So we have the first substitute sacrifice. If you've ever been into substitute in a sixth grade class, you know what that means, right? Substitute sacrifice. No, it's, it's different. Right, okay. I'm gonna give you a big theological word that you can impress somebody with lunch tomorrow. Like, what'd y'all talk about at church? <laughs> we talked about substitutionary atonement. What's that mean? I have no idea, right? Okay. <laughs> Adam should have died in the garden when he ate the fruit. God said, you can have all this tree, but if you eat off this fruit, you will die. He ate the fruit. He should have died, but instead, an animal had to die in his place. You had a substitute sacrifice, substantiary atonement. Now, eventually, at the age of 930 years of age, Adam would die, but he really should have died in the garden. Listen, there was grace in the garden. There was grace in the garden. Romans eleven twenty two. 22. Notice how God is both kind and severe. He's severe towards people who disobey, people who reject him. And he's kind if you continue to trust in his kindness. God is full of kindness and severe. God is full of grace and justice. Grace that Adam should have died, but God didn't kill him in that moment. He was able to live. Justice, a lamb had to die. And eventually at 930 years of age, Adam would eventually die. Grace was present in the garden. Grace was also present at the flood. The Bible says that all of humanity was despicable. Yet, Genesis 6, 8, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. In the wilderness, children of Israel have been rescued out of Egypt. They're wandering for 40 years, Okay. They made another God. Moses had been gone. They just got tired of waiting on Moses. They made another God. They made a golden calf. They danced. They worshiped around this golden calf. Romans eleven twenty two. God's full of kindness. God's full of justice. Some of them died that day, but most of them lived. There was grace in the wilderness. In the Old Testament, if you sinned, you had to offer a substitute sacrifice. So if I sinned, I had to bring a goat or a lamb or a bull or a bird. The different sin required a different sacrifice. The sacrifice in that context alone, that's really cool. Oh, well, that little goat was so cute. Why do you have to die? In that context, it's cruel. But in the context of Adam, it's grace. Adam could keep living and the goat died. Grace is throughout God's story and in the Old Testament, all right? You're still with me, say, all right. Remember, there is an order. God saved me. His Holy Spirit works in me. I get better. 
But human nature, with the help of our enemy, Satan or Lucifer, he wants to reverse the order. He wants to tell you, you got to get better, then the Holy Spirit will get to work, and then that's when God will save you. You got to work to earn your salvation. And the Jews had come to the place, they had reversed the order. They thought that you were made right by keeping the law. They thought that they were God's chosen people by keeping the law. There's 613 Jewish laws. I'll be honest with you. I thought the old covenant was about keeping the law. So let's talk about that. The purpose of God's law to the children of Israel. Purpose number one, it was for protection. How he guided them, okay? It was protection. God guided them. He gave them a way of living. If you will do this, it'll be good for you. If you'll obey this standard of living, it'll be good for you. If you use these principles, your life will go better. You're gonna have bad days, yeah, but these principles will prepare you for bad days. I'm gonna read a few verses out of Deuteronomy chapter seven when God is giving the law to Moses. Deuteronomy 7, 7 says, the Lord did not set his heart on you and choose you because you were really good looking. He did not choose you because you were so strong and powerful and wealthy or you were more numerous than any other nation's for you're actually the smallest of nations. God didn't look down and go, wow, I have just got to have them. That ain't what happened. Verse eight, rather what really happened, it was simply that the Lord loves you and was keeping an oath he had sworn to your ancestors, Genesis 15 and Genesis 17. That is why God rescued you with such a strong hand from slavery and the oppressive hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Understand, therefore, that the Lord your God is indeed God. He's a faithful God who keeps his covenant for a thousand generations. That's why he saved you. Not because he felt bad for you, but because he made a promise to Abraham all those years ago, a thousand generations, and he lavishes his unfailing love on those who love him and obey his commands. God's full of grace. Verse 10, he doesn't hesitate to punish. God's also full of justice. Verse 11, Therefore, obey these commands, these decrees, these regulations I'm giving you today. It's for your protection. God is full of grace. He didn't pick you because you were strong and big and mighty. He picked you because of a covenant, an everlasting covenant he made in Genesis chapter 15 and 17. He's also full of justice. If you disobey, he'll remove his protection. If you keep the laws, it's gonna go good for you. Listen, Israel, you had the best government system because God was your leader. You have the best civic law because God gave it to you. And if you will live according to that, man, you're gonna be prosperous and other nations are gonna look and go, man, their God must be stronger than our God. Look how prosperous they are and look how they all get along and how they like each other. That not only is good for you, but it brings glory to God, amen? The purpose of the law was protection. Let me show it to you in the New Testament. Galatians 3.19. Well, then why was the law given at all? It was added, it was given because of human sin. It was supposed to control us until Jesus could get here and fix this mess. That's the BKV verse. All right. God had to give the law because they were a bunch of slaves. They'd always been told what to do. They didn't know how to be free. They didn't know how to act. They didn't know how to eat. They didn't have a code system for behavior. They were slaves. And because of their behavior, because of their sin, God had to give them something, so he gave them the law. But that's all it did. It protected, it guided them. The second reason, the law gave protection. Number two, the law gave 
proof of trust. Follow with me. It's what the Garden of Eden is all about. The law gave people an opportunity to say, God, I love you and I trust you and I'll do what you ask me to do. Okay? Really, the story of the Garden of Eden. Adam, you can have all these, but if you trust me, Adam, if you love me, you'll give me this one tree back. Jesus said it this way. If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. 1 John 2, 3. And we can be sure that we know God. We can be sure that we're in relationship with him if we obey his commandments. So the law gives protection, but it also gives me a chance to prove, God, I love you, and God, I trust you. Okay? But after 1,500 years of human nature and the enemy trying to swarm things and spin things all around, the Jewish people had come to a place that they thought you were made right by the law. They switched the order. But if you go back to Genesis 15, where God makes this deal with Abraham, and I'm gonna get there in one second, I promise, God has this conversation with Abraham. And the Jews were God's chosen people because of a promise God made to Abraham, not because they kept the law. The promise came way before the law ever came along. God's just saying, listen, it's a promise. It's a covenant that I made with Abraham. That's why I brought you out of Egypt. Then when Jesus shows up on the scene, the Jews believe that righteousness came through the law. And Jesus is like, no, you've got the order backwards. God is a God of grace. God is a God of promise. God is a God of covenant. The law can't save you. Romans 11 said the law is powerless to save you. You can only be saved by faith. In the Old Testament, let me show you this verse. Genesis 15, 6. And Abram, who would eventually become Abraham, he believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him in right standing. The Lord made him righteous because he kept the law. No, that's not what it says. Because he was good looking. No, that's not what it says. God made him right standing because of faith. Grace has always been present in God's story. And the Jews got the order wrong. And when Jesus shows up on the scene, he just simply came to write the order. Okay? If you're still with me, say, okay. Y'all doing much better than first service. There was a guy snoring back over there. First, No, I'm just kidding. That didn't really happen. This is why this is important. Okay? We're like, let's just go to lunch, Mom. This is why this is important. Do you remember the question that was asked of the guard in the Philippian jail. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And their answer was really, really simple. God never intended for salvation to be complicated. They replied, all in the name of the Lord. Believe, just like Abraham did, believe in the Lord Jesus. You will be saved. Not works, not keeping the law, not work, not earning, not get better. Believe, call on the name of the Lord. Remember, there is an order. God saves me, the Holy Spirit works in me, and it produces right living, okay? May you always be filled with the fruit of salvation, that righteous character, that right living character that's produced in our life by the help of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, for this will bring glory to God. I'm saved, the Holy Spirit works, and it produces right living. The order matters because the enemy wants you to swap it. The enemy is trying to convince people you have to behave better for God to love you. 
Listen, God loves it when we behave well. He wants to get us there, but that's not the order. The order is God saves me, then the Holy Spirit gets to working on me, and then I grow up and mature, all right? So here's why the enemy is out to trip you up and swap the order. Number one is because pride is what got him, and he wants pride to get you too. It's what we call the original, well, it's, 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 the, it's the sin that got Lucifer kicked out of heaven. Isaiah chapter 14 tells this story. You said to yourself, I will ascend to heaven, set my throne above God's heart. This is Lucifer going like, I'm gonna be better than God is. He ain't nothing. I will climb to the highest mountains and be like the most high. <laughs> but instead, you got brought down to the place of the dead. You went down to hell. Okay? Pride caused him to fall out of good standing with God and out of heaven. And if I could save myself by my ability to work or look good or the money I had or whatever, then I can take pride in that. And pride got Satan and he wants pride to get you too. Misery loves company. Remember Ephesians 2, 8, God saved you by grace when you believed. Salvation's not a reward, so you can't be prideful, so you can't boast. Satan would love for us to be proud of our earning salvation. So that's why he's trying to get you to flip it so you'll make the same mistake he did. Number two, the reason why the enemy wants to swap the order. You guys still with me? He wants people to miss their opportunity of salvation. He wants you to be over here so busy working and trying and just trying to be good that maybe I'll be good enough that God will love me. Maybe I'll be good enough that I can get saved. Listen, I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And if I'm busy over here trying to be good and earn my salvation and trying to be saved by doing good things, I will miss the gospel and I won't find salvation. I'll spend my whole life over here working. Listen, listen, listen. You can be as good a person as it gets and still go to hell. You can't buy your way. You can't work your way. You can't be good enough. You can't be romantic enough. Thought I'd throw that in there to get into heaven. And that's part of the enemy's deception is to get people so distracted and busy that they're trying to earn God's approval, but I'm saved by a free gift of, free gift of grace. So number three, the reason why he wants to trip you up and swap the order, and this is the most important reason, is he wants you to miss the nature of who God is. He wants you to misunderstand God's nature. If I have to earn it, if I have to behave a certain way to earn God's love, what happens when I have a bad day? Because we all have bad days. What happens on the day that I don't behave the way I should? And God, then he becomes an angry God that I can never please, which will lead to bitterness and resentment towards God. I believe with all my heart, Satan has convinced an entire generation that God is mad at their behavior and in turn that generation is mad at God. If I have to earn my salvation, then I misunderstand that God is love, that God is rich in mercy, that God is abounding in grace. And Satan wants you to misunderstand who God really is and who his nature is. And that's why Paul, when he's praying for them, he says, I pray that you would be filled with knowledge and understanding, that you would really know who God is. So the enemy can't deceive you. The enemy can't get you to switch the order. I pray you fully understand the power of grace. 
that it was God that saved me, not because I was big or strong or wealthy or a big nation. It was God that saved me by his grace. And when he saved me, he gave me his Holy Spirit that began to work in me and grow me and convict me and help me get better. And that produced the fruit of my salvation, which is I just got better. I just started to live more like Jesus. And by the way, when you start to live more like Jesus, your life is full of joy. There'll come a day, and I think every, maybe not you, but most every young Christian I've ever talked to, this fear, did I do enough to be saved? Sirs, what, what must I do to be saved? Free salvation seems a little too good to be true. Did I do enough to be saved? What was their answer? Call on the name of the Lord and you shall be. Call on the name of, that it? Shouldn't I have to give a bunch of money? Shouldn't I have to work really hard? Don't I need to clean myself up? No, 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 no. That comes in the process. You just call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. And then the Holy Spirit starts to work on you and convict you and grow you. And that produces the good works that's gonna come. May you always be filled with the fruit of salvation. That's the righteous character produced in your life by the Holy Spirit at work. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. God never intended for salvation to be complicated. I hope you enjoyed the podcast today. If you did, there's a couple of things I want to invite you to do. First, hit the subscribe button. That way, you won't miss a single episode. Secondly, if this message has impacted you and you would like to help us reach others, visit our website at hillspring.tv and hit the Give Now button so that we can take this message around the globe. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.